We're in our third week of our Micah series, and it's a four-week look at the short, seven-chapter-long book of prophecy written by the prophet Micah. And it is clear from what we've seen in the first two weeks that God is watching, God knows what's going on, God cares about what's going on, and that God's patience can run out, and He will do something about it. Um, In the first week of our series, we saw God's response to the evil behavior of a group of rich, powerful people who thought they could get away with stealing land from local farmers through deception and fraud and violence. And God's response was that He was done with that injustice. And what He said through Micah was, if something doesn't happen to change this, there's going to be, I'm going to do something sweeping about it. And guess what? Things didn't change. And so God did something very sweeping to end that injustice. Then last week, we uh, looked at God's disgust with evil judges and politicians and prophets who were primarily in working out of the temple in Jerusalem. And these people were only interested in their positions of power, making it possible for them to get personal gain. In fact, the words that God gave to Micah to describe these evil, uh, they were mostly public officials and prophets. The words that God gave to Micah were stunning. Um, God called these people cannibals. Now, I might be wrong on this, but I've never found any place else in the Bible where God called people cannibals, but He did here. But something else that we've always seen, along with God's moments of warning, the words of warning that He gives to people and His words of judgment on people who are doing evil things, no matter how severe God's words of warning might have been, He always includes reminders of His unending love for His people and His faithfulness to them. So what we've seen over the last two weeks is this, that God gets angry. And I believe His anger over the kinds of sin that we've seen in Micah, it's all justified. But what we've also seen is that God is faithful to His promises. Even when His people have been disobedient in the extreme, God has not abandoned them. No, God always makes certain that His people are given some assurance of future hope. And it is always a hope that will be created by God Himself for them. Now, we've been using a specific phrase in the first two weeks of the series that will remind us that there are always two aspects to an Old Testament prophecy, that when God speaks to his, through His prophets, He intends to afflict the comfortable, and He also intends to comfort the afflicted. And what we've seen in the first two weeks is that there is a lot of afflicting the comfortable, especially when the comfortable are comfortable because of the way that they have taken advantage of other people. But God also speaks through His prophets to comfort the afflicted. And 
my goodness, we have seen a good deal of comforting as well, just in the first two weeks. Well, this week, we are going to turn a bit of a corner. In each of the last two weeks, we looked at both halves of all prophetic literature. We've looked at afflicting the comfortable and comforting the afflicted, and we've made certain that we focused equally on both halves of Michael's message, but this week will be a little different. What we will be primarily looking at this week are words of God's, words from God to Micah that speak of God's faithfulness. Now this week, we are not gonna talk too much about people who are acting like cannibals or who are murderers or gluttons and that kind of thing. We're going to be looking at just three short prophetic passages that were, at least to the ancient Jewish people, about as hopeful a group of messages from God as any other that we find in the Old Testament. And I know it may sound a bit hyperbolic for me to say that we are going to now look at the three most hopeful messages from God in the entire Old Testament. But I believe I'm right on this. We do know that the Jewish people held on to the three passages that we'll be talking about. They held on to them as hopeful to them for centuries. And they held on to this hope with great passion. We know from history that the Jewish people leaned on these passages to help them through times of great oppression, that they sang songs with the words from these verses in them, they often spoke to one another openly about what was coming as hope to one another, just talking on the streets and to their neighbors. We know this. Plus, and what I'm going to say may seem a bit odd, but I'm also convinced that one of the reasons that we still have these passages, one of the main reasons that the Holy Spirit worked overtime to make sure this tiny little book of Micah was copied and kept and read and given authority as the Word of God over time was that, so that you and I could better understand the heart and the mission and the ministry of Jesus. Now, I know that may sound like it's a big jump from ancient Jewish people getting hope from something and then us having a better understanding of Jesus. But stick with me. My bet is that you too will soon see that the message that God gave to the minor prophet Micah, the message was anything but minor. In fact, it has been for centuries a major source of hope and comfort. Such is the power of the three passages that we'll be looking at, and here they are, and I've gone a long time without telling you what they are, but here they are. They're Micah chapter two, verses 12 to 14, Micah chapter four, verses six to eight, and Micah chapter five, verses two to five. And I get to say something this morning that I haven't said for a year and a half. If you wanna look in the house Bible, it's on page 766 because I just found out yesterday there are house Bibles in the room. Hey, that's great. And if you're online, we're glad you're with us. Look it up. It's Micah chapter two. I tell people sometimes when you're trying to find Micah, just hold your Bible and look at the clean bit in your Bible where you've never put your thumbs, you know, to open. Just go to the clean bit, open it up, and it'll probably hit Micah, okay? So there we go. Now, just a bit of context to all that we're going to be looking at today. All of these passages of comfort and hope are as to be expected, found in the middle of God, other messages from God where he is complaining about the leadership of the Jewish people. Um, 
all around these verses that we'll look at, there are complaints from God. And they're mostly about the complaints from God about the kings who were ruling over the Jewish people. And we're not gonna spend much time reading all that God had to say to these failing disobedient kings. But take my word for it, if you go back and look at the historical accounts, and you'll find historical accounts about these kings in 2 Kings and in 2 Chronicles, and those, passage will, those passages will tell you why God was done with these rulers. Now, what God said in these passages where he's complaining is a bit rough, but it's well-founded, his roughness is. You see, these kings of the Jewish people had sought protection from their neighboring pagan the countries and the armies of the nations that were around them, that were pagans. Rather than trusting God, they'd made allegiances with people who didn't want anything to do with God, and yet the Jewish kings made allegiances with them for protection. And once they had made those arrangements of protection, the Jewish people started to do what? Worship the gods of those people. And as time went on, the Jewish kings pretty much were acting like their God was just a lucky charm that he owed them success. And you can feel God's disgust for the way that the kings were leading his people in what he says to them, and it's all justified. I'm just going to read you one little quick bit so you'll know how these verses that we're going to talk, talk about are, are there exactly the opposite weight of what God was feeling in his heart towards people who were not obeying him. He says, the Under your leadership, the rich among you have become wealthy through extortion and violence. Your citizens are so used to lying that their tongues can no longer tell the truth. Therefore, I will wound you. I will bring you to ruin for all your sins. You will eat but never have enough. Your hunger, pains, and emptiness will remain. And though you try to save your money, it will come to nothing in the end. You will save a little, but I will give it to those who conquer you. You will plant crops, but not harvest them. You will press your olives, but not get enough oil to anoint yourselves. You will trample the grapes, but get no ju- juice to make your wine. Okay. God is done with these people. He's just done with them. And he's right in that. But again, our main focus isn't going to be on the failure of the earthly kings. No, our focus is on what God is going to do and what he's going to promise so that someday there will be an end to all of that kind of injustice. Okay, now let's look at Micah chapter 2, verses 12 to 14. I know that we looked at these verses in the first week, but there's some things about them that we thought we ought to revisit. And so someday, O Israel, I will gather you. I will gather the remnant who are left. I will bring you together like sheep in a pen, like a flock in its pasture. The Jews were known as a nation of shepherds. And by the way, being a shepherd in the ancient world, in many, many of the countries of the ancient world, shepherds were considered a very lowly, if not a disgusting job. There's plenty of record, even in the Bible, of people who want nothing to do with shepherds because they just make them sick. And yet, here is the God of the universe saying to his people that I want to be identified with you as a shepherd. 
You can imagine how much that must have warmed their hearts when he says, I, I, I identify with who you are. And I want to be a shepherd of you, a shepherd who gathers your pe- my people up and gives them safety. This would have warmed their hearts. And he goes on to say, yes, your land will again be filled with noisy crowds. Now, this business of a noisy crowd is, it's really wonderful, actually. What it's talking about is market day. When everybody comes into town and everybody's trading and buying and everybody's seeing their friends and everything that's going on in the community is happening and there's just a big buzz and it's their safety and nobody's worried about somebody coming in and doing anything terrible or invading or anything. And what this says is to them that there's coming a day when there'll be a noisy crowd and that's a good thing. It's a really good thing. And he says, your leader will break out and lead you out of exile, out through the gates of the enemy cities, back to your own land. Your king will lead you. The Lord himself will guide you. Now, this is the first place that we find a promise from God that he himself is not only going to be present with his people, but he himself is going to replace the human kings that have brought so much suffering into the people's lives, and the Lord will be the leader who rescues his people and guides them into their own land. Now, I'm just saying that would have been a huge promise to the Jewish people who were suffering under the yoke of not only other nations who were oppressing them, but their own wicked, self-serving kings. And in Micah 4, 6, 8, 6 to 8, we read, In that coming day, the Lord said, I will gather together those who are lame, those who have been in exile, and those whom I have filled with grief. This list, the lame exiles and those who I, God, I, I have punished them by filling them with grief. Um, how do I say this? There were no more less likely people for God to pay attention to than these people in the Jewish world. If you were lame, the assumption was that either you or your parents had committed some kind of secret sin and that God was making sure that you paid for it and so you were lame and everybody just figured that's the reason they've got this problem. And if you were in exile, the reason that the exile means that you've been taken out of your land and sent someplace else to a foreign land and people who'd had that happen to them, everybody just assumed that they too had done something sinful and God had to punish them for that secret sin that we've not quite figured out what it is, but there they are being punished by God. And when it says people whom God has filled with grief, which is what it says in the Hebrew, more, it's more close to that kind of a sentence. These two were people who were being punished by God for something they'd done wrong or so everybody believed. And yet, God says, he was going to gather these people. Nobody would have expected that kind of graciousness from God at all. And yet, God goes on. Look what he says in verse 7. Those who are weak will survive as a remnant. Those who are exiles will become a strong nation. Well, God isn't just going to gather these people up. He's going to make a strong nation out of the weakest, most unlikely people. Now, if you were going to build a nation from scratch and you're gonna gather up people to have them come with you and make a new nation, the last people you'd probably pick were the lame or the exiles. But this is what God had said, what he's promised 
to his people who were defeated and weakened and had little hope. He was going to make the weakest the strongest. He says, then, then I, the Lord, will rule from Jerusalem as their king forever. Again, God is repeating something. He said earlier, and for good reason, God is making sure that the people understand that he's not kidding when he says he is going to be their king. God is going to be their king. And the hopeful words don't stop there. Look at what he says next. As for you, Jerusalem, the citadel of God's people, your royal might and power will come back to you again. And the kingship will be restored to my precious Jerusalem. Now, this is what every Jew at the time would have wanted to hear. They all longed to see Jerusalem restored to the power and the glory that it had in the days of Solomon. And for them to hear that the royal kingship would be restored, and not just a kingship over some meaningless little state of farmers. No, no, it's a nation that would have might and power and everything would be centered where in that great city of Jerusalem. This was the Jewish hope and longing but it's clear that God had no intention of repeating the past by allowing terribly flawed human kings to take on this responsibility. No, God says in the future, I'm gonna take that responsibility on myself. You can see why these two prophecies brought so much hope to the Jewish people. But it gets even better. Look at Micah 5, verse two, it says, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, are only a small village among all the peoples of Judah. Yet a ruler of Israel, whose origins are in the distant past, will come from you on my behalf. Now Ephrathah is a family name. It's a family that was loosely associated with Jesse, who was great King David's father, but it became a way to refer to the region around Bethlehem, to say Bethlehem Ephrath is sort of giving it two ways to find it. But the reason we need two ways to find it is this. Um, it says, Bethlehem, you're a small village. Well, that's an understatement. We know that when, in this time, when the king asked for a royal census or a list of every town and city in Judah, they didn't put Bethlehem on the list because it was so tiny, it didn't even make the list of a town or a village. But again, it was the hometown of whom? The great King David, so it only makes sense. But God says, I'm gonna take the smallest, the littlest of any place, and I'm gonna make it the hometown of the greatest of all rulers. Not only David, but the one who is coming. And he goes on, the people of Israel will abandon to their enemy, will be abandoned to their enemies until the woman in labor gives birth. Um, I'm gonna say something that, uh, Oh, it's okay that I say it. I've read 20-some commentaries on this verse. And everyone is different, and everyone makes absolutely no sense to me. And so I'm just going to say, 
And I've done the homework. I have no idea what this verse means. Seriously, I don't. And so I don't want to give you some idea that I know what it means when I've just been confused by it. I am confident that in the time that Micah wrote this, they had enough information to know exactly what he was talking about. But somewhere along the line, that information's gone. So I'm just going to say, sorry. But guess what? I do know what the next verse means, so we're going to go there. Okay, the next verse says this. It says, then at last his fellow countrymen will return from exile to their own land, and he will stand to lead his flock with the Lord's strength in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. Then his people will live there undisturbed, for he will be highly honored around the world, and he will be the source of peace. Now, this verse tells us what kind of king God was promising. One who will lead in the strength of the Lord, one who is honorable, and one who brings peace. This is exactly the opposite of what the kings had been bringing. And so if we take all three of these messages, all three of these passages together, they give us one picture of great hope. They say this, there is a day coming when God himself will gather his people. And the Lord will even gather the weakest and the least of all people. And he will build a strong nation out of these gathered people. And he will build a nation that is guided by a king who lives in the strength and the majesty of the Lord. And his reign will be honorable and filled with peace. And if that isn't enough for you, his reign will last forever and ever. And that's exactly why this passage gave the Jewish people great hope. Because all of that sounds wonderful and they're hearing it as a promise from God himself through a prophet. You can see why the the Jews took these, these particular passages and held on to them. They had suffered greatly at the hands of great pow- the great powers of the world and at the hands of their own kings. They were a defeated and scattered people, and they longed to not only see their homeland again for those who were exiles, but they longed to see their homeland thriving and respected and peaceful and strong, and Micah's prophecy promised that this would all happen someday and that God himself would be the one who made it happen. And yet, sadly, for some reason, the Jews took it upon themselves to figure out how all of this stuff was going to happen. The Jewish teachers of the day made lists and lists of what was going to happen to make this this new nation come about. They made lists of what was the Messiah, the king, was going to do when he came, what kind of person he would be, when it would all happen. And they talked about it all the time, and they told everybody, you've got to expect this and this and this. We still have those lists. And you know what? They got everything wrong but one thing, where this new king would be born. That's the only thing they get right. And we also know that when the king arrived, many people, especially the religious leaders, because they had so many expectations of what this coming king would be like and how he would show up and what would happen, because they had all these expectations, they missed his coming completely. By the way, Who is it 
that we know was born in Bethlehem, just like Micah prophesied. Who is it that came from the family lineage of the great King David, just like Micah prophesied? Who is it that stood over the great city of Jerusalem and declared, O Jerusalem, how I have so often desired to gather you together? Or who is it that when confronted with a huge crowd of Jewish people, he responded with great compassion and said, they look like sheep without a shepherd, just like Micah prophesied. And who was it that often gathered together the lame and the weak and people from faraway lands and healed them all, just like Micah prophesied? And who was it that in all four Gospels, which, do you know how unusual it is for all four Gospels to tell us the same story? The only other story that's in all four Gospels is the death and resurrection of Jesus. But in all four Gospels, it tells us that there was a moment when a man who had been born in Bethlehem came into the city greeted by a joyous multitude shouting blessings on the king, the son of David, who comes in the name of the Lord. Hail the king of Israel, just like Micah had prophesied. I could go on and on giving you a list of the ways that Jesus fulfilled everything that Micah prophesied in these three little passages, but I'm going to stop. You know, I said earlier that we have these passages so that you and I could better understand the heart and the mission and the ministry of Jesus. It's right there. Micah speaks of a king who is present, literally present, leading and guiding his people. Micah tells us about one who is concerned for even the weakest of all of his lambs. He tells us about a king who will build a nation out of his people who were once weak and broken but now are given strength and power. He tells us about a king who will bring honor to his people, a king who will bring his people security and he will give them peace that will last forever. He's talking about Jesus. What a gift of comfort and hope it is to know that Jesus is, without regard to anything that's going on in the world, He is still on the throne. He is still the King. I guess the only question that really matters when faced with this truth, the realities of this, is am I willing to give my life to this King? Am I willing to follow him as he leads and guides? And am I prepared to allow him to include me in his gentle yet strong nation? These are the questions I need to answer, and I've decided I'm going to answer yes to all of those questions. I hope you'll join me in that, saying yes to King Jesus. You know, Michael was a prophetic book that was written to speak to specific people in a specific time. It was purposed to let the comfortable know that their time of afflicting others was coming to an end, and to let those who were suffering under that affliction know that comfort was at hand. 
but couched within these prophecies that spoke to the people in Micah's day, there is also a vision of the great king of the kingdom of God. And Jesus is that king. Here's the bottom line for me. There was a real day, just like this day, when a king was born in Bethlehem. And that birth fulfilled all that Micah said about that. The prophecy was fulfilled. And I'm confident that there was also another real day when that man who was born in Bethlehem was declared king over Israel by a joyous, raucous crowd in the great city of Jerusalem, and he fulfilled Micah's prophecy. And I am just as confident that there is a day coming when God himself will gather his people, that the Lord will gather the weak and the strong. He will gather the greatest and the leaders least, and he will build a strong nation out of those gathered people, and the entire world will be guided by this honorable king, this king who calls himself the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the one who is and was and is to come, the Almighty One who lives in the strength and the majesty of the Lord, and his kingdom will be filled with righteousness and peace, and his reign will last forever and ever. When this day will come, I have no idea. But God himself said it will come. And that just gives me hope. Hope that maybe sooner than some of us expect. I don't know. But maybe he'll come. No, he's going to come. When, I don't know. But the Lord is going to keep his promise to rule over his world as our king and shepherd forever just as Micah promised. And all that my heart can say is this, oh, come Lord Jesus, come Lord Jesus, come. Would you pray with me? Father, I am thankful for these words in Micah. We have no idea, Lord, what the future holds, but we can live in the hope that you are the God of the universe you are the God who said that your son is coming back. We have no idea exactly what that means, Lord, but we do know that he is a king who wants to give us peace. He is a king who wants to make the weak strong. My prayer is that we will be a community that lives in such a way that we give people hope, that they can see your son in our lives that we can be the means to bringing peace and hope into the lives of those who so much need hope and peace now. I pray these things, Lord, thanking you for your great love for us and all that that means to us. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for watching, but don't stop there. We want you to find community at Grace Church, and the first step in doing that is going to gracechurch.us slash hub. There you'll find other sermons, details about upcoming events, and other important announcements. And make sure you subscribe to our channel so you don't miss out when we post something new. Thanks again for watching. We'll see you next time.